Welcome to episode 145, Inviting Race into Supervision, Vital Basics for the Clinical Development of Culturally Responsive Supervisees, featuring Dr. Sonia Sutherland, Licensed Professional Counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Iriez, and today I am looking forward to having a really deep and intense conversation with our podcast guest today, which is uh, Dr. Sonia Sutherland. She is a licensed professional counselor, and she is a faculty member at Walden University, and also the chief diversity consultant for the president of Richmond Graduate University. And her jam is culturally responsive supervision, and I am just delighted to be spending this time with you. So thank you, Dr. Sutherland, for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I gave you just a very brief introduction, but for our listeners, why don't you tell them a little bit more about yourself and then how you came to have this particular supervision and um, cultural awareness focus in your work? Sure. Well, I think probably the most important thing is I'm a mommy. I have two girls, 30 and 27, um, and they are my joy. I'm from Brooklyn. Uh, born and raised and live in Georgia right now, but I still consider myself a Brooklyn girl. Um, how did I come to this particular space? You know, it's been an evolution. Um, I started my work with children of color, teens of color. Um, and when I started in the field, no one was talking to me about cultural competence. This was back in the 90s. And I had no supervision around cultural competence at all. Um, And so as I made my way through the field doing in-home counseling, private practice, community-based, then eventually got to psychiatric residential, um, I began to kind of think to myself, why is it that, one, I see so much of myself, my children, in these settings getting, you know, for services, And why do I feel like even in these settings, they're still marginalized? And I couldn't really put my finger on it. There are times where I felt so protective and I said, okay, well, are you just kind of, you know, being a mommy type of thing? But no, there was, there were things happening and it was clinicians who didn't understand how their approach to the work that they were doing was marginalizing of uh, children and teens of color and families of color. I think that probably is when it started. And then as I got into my doctoral program uh, and really began to learn more uh, and then began to teach and supervise, that's when I really began to dig into how do I teach my students what this means to be culturally competent. I became dissatisfied with the one graduate program course in social and cultural diversity, which was meant to help clinicians in training be culturally competent. And I realized this does not work. That's not enough, right? And so I think that's where it all started. Uh, And then as I began to do my own supervision, just really delving a whole lot more into it and trying to develop a model that makes sense because it's really nebulous. It's it's sometimes just this um, idea that we have, well, yes, we need to be culturally competent. Let's, Let's do that. And then it's this you know, ethereal thing that sometimes people have a hard time grasping. And so I really just wanted to um, figure out how do I make this practical? Um, because it's important. As you're talking about it, I'm thinking about the biopsychosocial social spiritual model and how this is an idea that has been around for a while, but it's really only been in the last decade that that's really started to materialize as the most appropriate and applicable model for not only psychotherapy, but for medical and for, for other kinds of treatment. And that there's this critical element that we've so often overlooked, which is the race, the culture, the ethnicity, and that I agree with you, I think in a lot of uh, master's and doctoral programs, like this one class, and then you have this sense of like, okay, I've checked the box, I've taken the class, therefore I must be culturally competent. Um, and it's so uh, inaccurate. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm grateful to have this conversation uh, about this with you. Um, before we dive into the supervision piece of it, 
through your lens, what does quote unquote cultural competence even mean? Do you like that term? Are there other terms you prefer? Can you speak to that Mm. piece first? Yeah, I tend not to get into the argument around cultural competence, cultural humility, just all of that. I think that it distracts from the conversation. I do understand it. I do agree. This idea of cultural competence being a destination and when you get there, you get there is wrong. That is absolutely uh, inappropriate. Um, I don't think that there's one phrase that can capture all of it. I really don't. I think that there's a space for cultural competence to be a part of the conversation in terms of nomenclature. I think that cultural humility has a space in the conversation in terms of nomenclature. It's all of it. And I, 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 so I tend not to get into the argument, well, we shouldn't say cultural competence. Eh, okay. We know what we're talking about. Just explain it. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> So for you, what are we talking about, regardless of that nomenclature of yeah. the, the wording? How do we recognize that beyond this idea of being culturally competent clinicians, um, that there is this racial trauma space that we never get into when it comes to people of color? I think that people, um, unfortunately, because this is what we're taught, think in a very narrow way about working with in black and indigenous and people of color, um, meaning understand their culture and work with them from a culturally responsive way, know about where they're from and their ethnicity, right? Understand their gender and how that intersectionality with their ethnicity may work or, you know, those types of things. And those are all correct. Absolutely. But we don't teach racial trauma. We don't talk about racial trauma. Well, now we do, more specifically, since 2020, right? Now we hear it all the time. But historically and in school, we don't really talk about it in a way that really presses into the reality of this is a thing. And it's been a thing for hundreds of years, right? And so I think that's where this conversation really needs to go more and more and more and continually and not just kind of peter out after a couple of years and 2020 is gone uh, and all of the events of 2020 and we're in 24 and we're not talking about it anymore. Yeah. In your work as a supervisor, I'm curious if we're start if we're starting at square one with a supervisee, I'm curious for you, what is your assessment process for evaluating somebody's cultural awareness? Or is that just instantaneous from the moment you sit down with them and you go, hmm, (laughs) like how they're carrying themselves when they walk Mm -hmm. into the room and sit down? Tell me about what that's like for you, um, not only as a supervisor, but also as a black woman. Yeah. No, I try uh, not to kind of have them walk in the room and just kind of go, huh, because I invariably have found that I miss I get caught missing something. That's a space of bias that then pops up. And so I try not to. Um, And so we start the conversation right at the very beginning. Tell me about who you are, where you're from, where's your family from? Just talk about, you know, get to know them. And I think, you know, that just small part of, because what I used to do was uh, talk to me about your development goals, your clinical development goals. What do you want? Where do you want to see yourself? What are the things you have strength? Where are your, you know, areas of of deficiency that you want to work on? You know, things like that. Um, What professional development do you anticipate that you need? Right. And just kind of doing those types of things that you hear about or read about in uh, Bernard and Goodyear's supervision book from, you know, in grad school and not really delving into, well, how about a genogram between us, right? What, what, tell me about yourself, right? Because when we don't have that insight into our supervisees, we don't then have any foundation for asking and inquiring when they're working with different people of different ethnicities. Well, how is this playing out for you, right? Because I remember we talked about X, right? Back when we started and we talk about, right? So there's got to be a foundational understanding of your supervisee that involves their own culture. And so I think that's really important to assess. And so outside of that, the ongoing space is listening for 
Um, and this is why I developed the model that I developed, because I wanted to really understand and clarify in just an easier way, what's the language I'm listening for that allows me to kind of get a sense of where are they in terms of bias and things like that? What don't they recognize? What, and so listening for certain things in how they talk and what they talk about becomes really important in terms of ongoing assessment, right? And so those type of relational things and listening things are important. Um, and then I think in terms of like hardcore paper and pencil assessment, um, there are two things that I like. One, I have my own that I have just based on my model, but there is also another one, a cultural assessment, um, not battery, but just a questionnaire um, that comes out of uh, an organization in Canada. And it really is like a checklist, a cultural competence checklist type of thing. And it's a bunch of statements that cover awareness, knowledge, and skill. And we take that and we kind of spend time over not one session, but just over the course of our, our career together, our time together, just digging into those types of questions and talking through them. And what does it bring up in you when you when you read this statement? Um, I have or think it's important to have friends who are culturally different from me, and I'm intentional about doing that some of the time, all the time, often, right? And then check that off. Right. And then have a conversation about well, what were you thinking when you read it and decided where you wanted to put yourself. Right. And when, now that you did it, you know, how do you feel about the answer that you had? Right. And just talking about those things. Those are things that have to happen all the way through. As you're talking about this, I can hear your perspective on supervision kind of drip out of what you're saying, which is it's not about the client. It's about the supervisee. It's about the clinician. And and I it's it's an important distinction that you haven't even stated, but I think the implication is there, uh, where I can hear this Hippocratic oath almost coming through of your idea of do no harm and mm -hmm. saying to yourself the way that I can serve clients of color is to prepare supervisees and nurture this awareness and sensitivity within them to prevent more trauma to an already mm -hmm. traumatized population. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you're doing this assessment, I'm curious, with your supervisees, where you are, just out of curiosity, are most of your supervisees of the same race and ethnicity as you, or are they often different? And how does that shift your approach if it is same or different with you, and then also same or different with the client base, knowing that certain populations are going to be not more diverse, for example? Yeah, no, I my supervisees really run the gamut uh, in terms of race uh, and ethnicity. And so while the approach in terms of listening for things and the assessment and things like that are the same, what invariably happens is the answers and the perspectives and how they talk about um, things hitting them will be different because they're different. And so that allows me to kind of uh, adjust and meet each one where they are. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a little different, just like with my students. Um, it hits me differently when I'm having conversations with white students or white clinicians um, than it does when I'm having conversations with um, students and supervisees of color. Um, because I am a black woman. So yeah, um, but that's okay. That's appropriate. Um, that's part of my own awareness and ongoing growth. And um, every supervisee at some point in our time together triggers something in me that makes me have to explore um, and becomes a growth moment for me. So I think that was just the first part of your question. I don't remember the next part, what you said. <laughs> No, I, I actually, I loved your answer. And I, I want to inquire more about one of the things that you just said. You just opened up this whole container about a growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset as a supervisor. And as a supervisor, former supervisor myself, um, sitting with the challenge of holding space for the supervisee with also awareness of how the macrocosm and microcosm are working in our relationship and mm -hmm. then how that plays out in the therapy room with clients sitting with 
my own vulnerability, uh, my own blind spots. And I appreciate how open you were just about that piece, because I think especially for newer supervisors, there's there's so many um, uh, parallel processes that are happening yeah. in supervision where yeah. it's like, well, I'm the expert and I have the power. I'm the supervisor. Uh, and that that's an invariable part of this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. We have very little power and that's not, that shouldn't be our goal. Our goal is mentorship and influence really. Um, and so I, I don't have all the answers <laughs> and it's okay for me not to have the answers. You never want to model for your supervisee that you have all the answers because all it does is promote in them. I need to have all the answers myself, right? It doesn't really promote this idea of openness to ongoing growth and being okay to say, I don't know, let me look and explore more. Right? So yeah, power and having all the answers is really not what we're after as supervisors. I really appreciate what you just said, because I think then it is that as above, as below. So what you're modeling as a supervisor for the supervisee is and what the supervisee is modeling for their clients and being okay with the not knowing. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that there are moments when as supervisors, we teach. I'm not saying that, um, that we don't have a level of expertise that we bring to the table. We absolutely do. Yeah. But, you know, we, we have to flex and understand what super, uh, supervisees need from us. Sometimes they need a teacher to reinforce what they learned in school. Sometimes they need a coach. Sometimes they need um, just a consult. Sometimes they need more. So hands off. It just it really just depends. So flexing is important. So in your conceptualization in the clinical development of supervisees, so you're doing this kind of ongoing assessment with this initial assessment to essentially look at where they are in their cultural awareness and then where you believe you can work with them to help improve their cultural awareness and sensitivity and how they're actually showing up in the room. I know you've invested a huge amount of time in creating your own model for how you're viewing this. Can you speak with me about that and how you conceptualize breaking this down and then actually um, turning it into methodology, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. So the model that I, I developed is a stages of change model. And really, it is meant for jump starting a discussion um, and awareness with supervisees just around cultural compass development, and how to move in that space, right. And so I said discussion, and I'm, I'm pressing that it is meant to start a discussion and an awareness and not rather identify like a box or a stage, well, this is where this person is, and kind of put them in a box, right. Um, because we don't want to do that to ourselves or our supervisees, right. So um, I, for example, what the way the model works is, I think that we can be between stages, so to speak, in that model. I'll give you an example. So at different points in my career, I've been aware of myself uh, in a couple of different stages. I recall uh, just kind of being um, both in this stage of cultivation of learning around uh, cultural diversity um, and a space of cultural um, advocacy. And in my model, that's the stage of civility compounding. And just kind of being in those stages at the same time. When I started teaching at the graduate level, um, uh, I taught students of color as well as um, dominant culture individuals. And I found that there was a huge difference in the educational preparation of, of students of color um, that was lacking. Uh, and I found that when I had to read papers and grade papers, and I can't really do that without correcting grammar, it's just me. I, sentence structure, I can't ignore it, right? And at the same time, I, I was a little frustrated that I had to do it so often with my students of color and wondering, does this, is this something I really need to do? And, you know, I didn't catch it, but really what that mindset was, was if I can do it on my own, they ought to be able to do it on their own as well, right? And that really does not um, acknowledge um, the reality of structural racism at lower levels of education, right? And so it wasn't that I didn't already know that. And historically, um, I know about redlining. I know about the different educational opportunities and experiences that students of color don't have. Um, I had firsthand knowledge of that, but it still kind of snuck up on me when I started teaching. And at the same time, 
because they're students of color and I'm a black woman as well, when I saw injustice racially within the, the university, I had to be the advocate. I had to step in. I had to be that safe space. And I wanted to be that safe space, right? So two different spaces. So I say that to say no boxes, right? The model is meant to be fluid so people can kind of um, understand who they are. And so within that model, there's a pre-contemplative stage that folks can be in, right? That questioning of what's there to know, right? I don't know if racism and discrimination is really real, that type of thing. Um, everything that I see on the news tells me that I'm right about those people or them, right? And then there's this stage where they're willing to break through and contemplate, maybe. Okay, I see what you're saying, but eh, I'm not responsible for that. I'm not really a racist, right? Um, I'm a good person, right? I see it, but I'm a good person, right? And then there's a stage of acknowledging, yeah, it is real. There's a lot I don't know. Let me dig, right? What? Let me read. What don't I know? What can I figure out? What do I want to really understand better about that person sitting across the table from me, right? And then there's a stage of understanding and moving into advocacy, right? And all those stages as you think about people moving through those stages, um, we pull in things like racial identity development and how that helps to put a frame on why you think the way that you do, how it came to be that you think the way that you do. Um, we bring in this idea uh, and, and, and the thoughts around um, the multicultural uh, social justice counseling competencies and the multicultural orientation framework and all those pieces that are so necessary, but we kind of talk about one over here and we talk about one over here and one, right? Not pulling them all together in one model. And so my approach and the assessment that I have in mind is to pull all that together and in the conversations. Uh, and that's what, that's what I tend to do. For our listeners that uh, maybe need a quick refresher on the stage of change yeah. model, Will you give mm -hmm. a quick refresher on stage of mm -hmm. change and also how you see it fitting in with this piece about cultural uh, diversity and and how your brain breaks down these concepts and this framework? Sure. And so we know the trans theoretical stages of change, right? Um, that mostly substance abuse, but really it runs through all of our the work that we do, right? There's this initial stage of pre-contemplation. Um, there's a stage of contemplation, right? Then there is um, delving into the work, there's maintenance and all of that kind of thing. Um, I think, and the way that I've used that model is really just to um, frame this idea that cultural competence has to be developed in stages. It can't be this thing that we just throw one thing over here, we throw something else over here. Maybe if they get this piece, they'll get it. It's not, it is just a developmental space. And we say that we know that when we, we teach it, but we don't actually understand it in practice when we're working with our supervisees. We don't understand what are we looking at? How do we put a frame on it and a name on it, right? How does that help us inform where to go next potentially with this supervisee, right? And so putting this in the stages of change space allows supervisors, I think, to really understand, and supervisees uh, as well, but to really understand that this is a patience game. And it has to be a non-judgmental patience game where we just really are looking for how do we develop not just the awareness, but the awareness of how to move through developmentally and that the pace is different for everybody. And here are the things that we need to look for along that spectrum of development. I sincerely appreciate the example that you gave from your own reflection, because I think that helps break down for me and for listeners, this idea of being able to view ourselves as supervisors as malleable and flexible and existing within multiple stages ourselves simultaneously and appreciating our own growth. And therefore, through that, being able to appreciate the growth in our supervisees and the awareness that we're going to flip through stages and maybe exist in multiple at the same time. I think that um, background is helpful to kind of frame what you're talking about. You and I have previously spoken about the race trauma connection. Um, can you speak more to that and why you think it's so important for supervisors 
first, for supervisors first to understand this and then to be able to convey it to supervisees. Sure. Uh, But before we we do that, I want to just kind of jump back for a second, if you don't mind. Um, Because one of the things that's important to know, we understand, for example, with with, um, the racial identity development models, those also are stage of change type of models as well, right? And they're very helpful. One of the things that I found difficult, even with those models that bring awareness to students and to supervisees and to clinicians, absolutely, is that there still is this practical space that that tends to be elusive. Even understanding that it's a stage of change is this practical space of, I get that, but when I'm sitting down with my supervisee, how am I applying that? Yeah, absolutely. It's theoretical. And then what does that actually do to flip into something in the room? I appreciate that you bring that up because I I think, and I think that's in my, in my experience, I think that is the limitation of a, of a number of theories and it's all good for us to talk about it, but what does that actually Mm -hmm. mean in the room? So I appreciate that you brought up that um, disconnect. Yeah. And that's why I pull all the models together that I think are most important. The racial and cultural identity development models, the um, multicultural orientation framework, the social multicultural and social justice counseling competencies, all of them have these pieces that we need that are important and we understand, but we understand them separately. We never really pull them together and understand them together and apply them together. And that's what what the model that I have, have put together helps me do. And that's why I'm so excited about it and get to share with other people. Thank you. I, I appreciate you making that distinction um, and also sharing how it helps you to see kind of these layers and how they're yes. complementary when you can't. Yes. I, I completely understand conceptually what you're talking yes. about. And I hope our listeners do too, that it's this oversimplification that we find ourselves in, that it doesn't actually move into action. Speaking yes. of stages of change. <laughs> yes. yes. And it's confusing for supervisors. It's, it's confusing for us. I'm a black woman. And initially it was just like, okay, what do I do with this? Right. Just because I'm a woman of color, me, right. And so I can imagine that, that white supervisors struggle with this, the Hispanic supervisors, right, struggle with how do I practically do this and apply this in a way that makes a whole lot of sense. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, so going back to this idea of the race trauma connection, can you speak to that? And 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 all of this is prefaced by saying we're having a one hour conversation. And this conversation is actually much longer (laughs) than one hour. So for our listeners, yes, we are just scratching the surface uh, in this conversation. And there's certainly more here to be discussed. But if you could give the quick and dirty about race trauma connection, that would be great. Oh, my goodness, quick and dirty. Well, (laughs) when we talk about racial trauma, the race trauma connection, really talking about race-based traumatic stress injury, right? We all know about microaggressions, what those are, right? I'm not going to go into that, but they are part of the underpinning, underpinnings of understanding what racial trauma really is. The microaggression lens allows us to kind of understand how daily micro insults or micro assaults or micro invalidations contribute to that psychological and emotional pain that individuals of color experience. And then repetitively, if this kind of thing keeps happening, what happens is when we we have that incident, what it is akin to and what it in reality is, is that that stress response system that we innately have that kind of flips on when we are in acute stress or an emergency, right? Um, And it's the body's way of dealing with that stress. Um, But given the pervasiveness of interpersonal and structural racism in our country and the experiencing of it across the lifespan, uh, school, work, medical, legal system, all of that, it shows up all the time. And that stress response system is powered on all the time for people of color, even if it's just kind of running low level in the background, it's on, right? And, And so this is stress that perpetually is happening for people of color. And the thing to realize is uh, some people might listen to that and kind of say, well, you don't have to, right? Just you're being too hypervigilant or something, you know, things like that. But understand that when we as people of color are caught off guard with racism hitting us, 
it is so much heavier than if we kind of been just a little prepared and watching just because we know the setting we're in, right? And so that underlying running in the background thing so that you're not caught off guard is almost a survival mechanism because we know it's going to come and it does come, right? And so understanding that as part of it, I was, I was, um, I live in Atlanta and I was at Emory Hospital earlier this fall. Um, and when I finished, I was going to pay for my car at the valet. So I was waiting in line behind the person in front of me. And when that person was done, this white couple came straight across the line. I was the only one waiting and went straight up to the booth to pay. And I said, the, the wife turned and looked at me and I said, there is actually a line and I am next. And she just kept looking at me. So I said it again, there's a line, ma'am, and I'm next. Meanwhile, her husband's not paying attention, but I'm talking to her and she's looking at me, right? And then she, I said, did you hear what I said? And she smiled at me and said nothing. And by that time, her husband was done, of course. And so they went out. So I said, okay, well, maybe she's hard of hearing. Maybe she speaks another language, you know? And so I said, but then they went out talking right out the door. And so it wasn't that. And understanding that those types of things that happen are things that catch us off guard. And if I didn't have that low level, just awareness running in the background, it hit me. Believe me, it did. I thought about it all the way home and on the ride home. But that's the kind of thing that repeatedly happens um, and in interferes with our well-being. And so we see things like depression, anxiety that folks don't recognize are related to race-based incidents throughout the lifetime. We see depression and anxiety as clinicians in a Eurocentric space. That's what we were taught. But we don't make that connection that race and racism is a trauma connection that we can't ignore when we come to the clinical room. Um, even if people of color don't really bring it up, it's there. And we have to kind of understand that that connection is there. And more than that, we have to understand that there is a physiological uh, ramification to this. When we talk about the health ramifications of racism, what we're really talking about is more than this idea that it's racial trauma. What we're talking about is this understanding that when our stress response system kicks into gear, cortisol is released in the system, right? And when cortisol gets released, of course, there is some uh, glucose that gets released because it's the energy that we need to deal with the stress or the emergency that's in front of us. But if our emergency stress response system is powered up all the time because we're dealing with racial stress and trauma as a normal way of existing, day to day, then there's more stress, more often in the life experience. That means there's more cortisol, more often and unabated in the system, which means there's more sugar, more glucose in our system ongoing, right? And where am I going with this? That puts people at higher risk for disease, diabetes. And, and, and we, we say this thing like, well, if they would just eat healthier, if they would just, you know, if they would just, if they would just, and nobody makes these connections, right? With the chronic levels of health disparity with racism and the connections are there. So clinicians need to understand all of this space because it really informs how we understand individuals of color coming into the clinical room and not just this thing that we see in front of us. There is a whole nother layer that we have to be aware of. Ooh, quick and dirty. It's hard to unpack, Dr. Sutherland. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. And how you feel right now that it's, that the quick it's, can't be quick and dirty, it's hard to unpack. Imagine how we feel as people of color, right? It's insidious. It's just this underlying thing that is just like, oh my gosh. I'm curious for you as a supervisor. So if we're looking at what I call marginalized identity cards <laughs> and how many somebody holds in their wallet. And some of them are immediately visible to somebody else. And some of them are not, some of them are invisible. For you as a supervisor that has assessed uh, a perceived lack of uh, marginalized identity cards in somebody's wallet, <laughs> if you get where I'm going, <laughs> um, how do you conceptualize this for a supervisee that is still very much in pre-contemplation 
um, because perhaps they are so much a part of multiple dominant cultures that there is just so little awareness for the stressors that are faced continually by members of marginalized communities, whether that's related to race or gender or um, or um, abilities, whatever it is, that it's just part mm-hmm. of the ether that is unavoidable mm-hmm. as part of a marginalized community. H- how do yeah. you talk about that with someone who is not, as far as you know, <laughs> it is not part of mm-hmm. a marginalized community? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've done with some, I've done it with all, but I started doing this with some to kind of test it out and see how it would work. Um, I think everybody knows the addressing GSA model, right? In school, we remember addressing from our social and cultural class, right? And now it's expanded to addressing GSA, right? And so for those folks who don't don't remember, GSA is the acronym that we use to talk about what your, your those marginalized marginal marginalizing, say that three times fast, marginalizing cards, right? Um, Age, disability, whether it's um, developmental or acquired, race, religion, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, um, sexual orientation, indigenous heritage, national origin, gender, and then um, gender assigned at birth for the new GSA, gender assigned, um, I'm sorry, gender expression, is what that is. So the first gender is gender identity, the G in addressing, and then the next G is uh, gender expression, then size, and then assigned sex at birth is the A, right? And so I introduce that in supervision and I say, let's talk through this and let's talk about us in relation to this. And we go down the line and we talk about and describe ourselves I describe myself, they describe themselves. And we talk about the differences in what we're describing um, and how some spaces are marginalizing for me. So they hear me talk about it and why. And they hear that against how they are describing themselves as part of the dominant culture. And it starts the conversation in about, well, how do you think those differences might show up in a clinical room? And how might these differences between us right? Impede our relationship, help our relationship. What impact could they possibly have? What are the things that you don't understand about me because of my race or ethnicity, you know, because it's different from yours. And I think starting that conversation with me as the supervisor um, can be helpful. Now, of course, I'm a supervisor of color. So for white supervisees, that's helpful. It's harder, sure, when you have a white supervisor and a white supervisee who both come from a lot of dominant culture cards, who have very few marginalizing cards, it does become more difficult. And so they have to be a little bit more, supervisors need to be a little bit more creative in how they figure out, how do I do that, right? And unfortunately, white supervisors will not be able to do that unless they've done work themselves. Right. I've done work myself in addition to being a black woman. Right. And so for supervisors who haven't done any work around um, race, diversity, all of that kind of stuff, will have a really hard time doing that with their supervisees who are also white. And they'll have a hard time doing it with supervisees of color. Right. And at the same time, also recognizing that those supervisors that have the quote unquote marginalized identity cards in their wallet, however many there are, the increased vulnerability then of that supervisor in having that conversation with with supervisees of dominant culture, whatever that is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it can be disconcerting sometimes when you have a supervisee who doesn't get it and you are the one to begin the conversation with them. But the thing to realize is that you're not, eventually you're not gonna be the only one having the conversation with them. Your goal is to get them to have conversations with other people around it, not just with you. Um, And so that is why it is also important for supervisors of color to have supportive spaces, right? Because even as we do the work and we are experiencing potentially trauma ourselves at different points in time and times in our lives for you know for any reason at all. We have to have those spaces of safety where we can express, where we can recharge. Every time I've, I've taught social and cultural 
class on the graduate level for about seven years now. And at first it was fine, but about four years in, um, things started to hit me that I was teaching in the class in ways that I hadn't really felt before. I was triggered. I was being re-traumatized by the material as I was teaching it. And I, I remember the first time I experienced it, I didn't really catch it. The second time it happened, I thought, what the heck is going on? And I realized what it was. And I had to then remember, you need to be talking about this in your own safe space with someone else. So I called a mentor of mine, of course, and we talked about, you know, what am I experiencing? Why is this triggering me? And we just kind of, I had the opportunity to do that. So we have to be doing our own work and have our own safe space, even while we are trying to do that for supervisors, supervisees of color and white supervisors. And I will give permission to supervisors of color to step back. Our levels of vulnerability don't have to be complete at all. We do not have to put ourselves in unsafe spaces with supervisees for the sake of their development. We absolutely do not have to do that, right? And so we can step back and we can find other ways to do things um, because we have to also safeguard ourselves. Absolutely. Um, I I am glad you brought up that point of it. Um, And I think that's, that's a conversation that we've had a couple of times on the podcast and I think need to keep having, which is awareness of self and safety and that informed consent is actually mutual. It's not just, mm-hmm. it's not the therapist informing the client, here's what informed consent looks like. It's also me as clinician or me as supervisor consenting to this relationship and to this um, working dynamic, whether that's in supervision or therapy. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Um I have so many questions I want to keep asking and I'm aware of time um, because there is so much here. So for me as, as a white woman, I certainly had the experience. It's not at all uncommon of working with individuals of different races and ethnicities, particularly early in my career, because I was working in county-based environments that tended to be in bigger cities, things like that, where there was more diversity um, and also sitting with the uh, inherent disparities within the treatment provider and the treatment receiver, um, that we are in a white heavy field relative to the people that we're working with. How do you, um, how do you, as someone who has invested so much, not just academic time, but also emotional labor in this conversation, what is your challenge to the dominant culture supervisor? do the work is my guess, but can you expand on that? Um, because I think that in the same way that the white therapist needs to be doing the work themselves when working with communities of color, what does a white supervisor need to hear so that they can be better in their work with supervisees of color? So many things do the work, obviously. Yeah. I think one thing that white supervisors need to hear is one Be afraid because it's okay. Fear is okay, but be courageous in the fear space, right? And don't feel as though you need to be perfect in any way um, as you do the work. You're never going to be perfect. I'm not perfect. I will never be perfect as a Black woman, right? And so you don't have to be either. What supervisees are looking for from you is genuineness, is the ability for them to come to you and be able to say the things they need to say without fear of um, being CBT to death to say, well, maybe you're thinking about it the wrong way. Maybe we're right. Or what even your white supervisees not being able to come to you to say, my family is from And here's what my family has done historically, right? My family was, they were enslavers. I'll just say that. And here's how I'm thinking about it. Here's how I feel about it when I'm with a client of color. And for, as a supervisor, for you not to wash it away because of your own guilt, potentially, and not to um, nullify the reality of, that supervisee saying, I am in a space of um, 
maybe contemplation of something really hard and I don't know what to do with it, right? And be patient and say, well, I don't know what to do with it either, and, but, I, but I'm willing to talk it through. I'm willing for us to kind of have the conversation and be that support that you need, right? And so you don't have to know, but you do have to be supportive and you do have to validate and to help them work through, right? And so I think just not trying to be perfect, be available and listen, be a counselor for a minute and use those skills. Don't do therapy, but, you know, be a counselor. So I don't know. I think white supervisors can be afraid sometimes. And, you know, yeah, I get that. But be courageous in the face of that fear. And I, it's obviously not just white supervisors, it's white people. And that's part of why we're having this conversation is um, the necessity to shed some light on this. Um, one of the yeah. things that you said, and I want to zoom in for a moment, if it's all right with you, you said, to, mm-hmm. I think you said something like CBT it away. I want you to speak <laughs> yeah. about that for a minute, because that is a very real phenomenon that happens in therapy, yeah, particularly with marginalized identity members, um, yeah. that it's this idea of like, oh, well, that's an irrational thought. And I'm perseverating, like whatever I'm doing is pathological, because I keep worrying about the microaggressions or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to wave mm-hmm. our little magical CBT one, and boop, it's gone, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> bippity boppity boop, the, yeah. the irrational thoughts gone. Can you, mm-hmm. can you get on the soapbox for a minute and speak about that phenomenon, because I think that's another piece sometimes that particularly supervisors of any marginalized, um, or sorry, of any uh, dominant culture identity can really quickly glaze over um, and try to CBT it away. Yeah, I, I think you described it really, really well. That's exactly what it is. It is individuals of color coming and saying, here's my experience of marginalization. It is your queer supervisee coming to you and saying, here's my experience of marginalization, right? It's your black queer supervisee. And hopefully they've come out to you. And if they haven't, you need to think about that as well. But your black queer supervisee saying, here's my space of marginalization and hearing from their supervisee exactly what you said. Well, you know, maybe there's another perspective. Let's, let's talk about that, right? How about you go home and journal about the things that you're experiencing. We come back and we can kind of maybe see, um, maybe there are some different approaches that you can take uh, that won't make you feel so emotional or won't you know, end up being anger, right? And you know, things like that. Uh, yeah, that's CBTing it away. That is saying what you feel, that's a micro invalidation. What you feel is not really legit. Let me tell you how or let me show you some ways where you could really be better dealing with it. And you put the responsibility on the person as opposed to really digging in and understanding, well, there's a system that's impacting my supervisee or my client. Let me understand that system and how my client and supervisee has to exist in it. And maybe I can help them figure out how to exist in it in a way that's not as harmful for them or that they can protect themselves as opposed to saying to your supervisee, well, yeah, you're probably not thinking about that the right way. Let's work on your emotions, right? Your thinking. You just used a word that I've never heard before and I wrote okay. it down, which was micro-invalidation. And okay. I I really appreciate, I've, I've actually never heard that word used and I appreciate that you just said it and you just taught me a new word. Um, and this idea that absolutely, whenever a therapist or a supervisor is giving to the other person the idea of whatever you're feeling is not legit, you know, we let's mm-hmm. argue with that concept. That's such a foundational part of so much of psychotherapy is kind of like, is, you know, CBT. And that's part of the, the issue is that it's like, well, let's argue with that automatic thought. And it's like, well, what happens mm-hmm. if we don't argue with it? And I, I had a conversation with a client not too long ago um, that invited the client into the space and evaluating the reality of the person's marginalized uh, 
community membership. And I'm like, well, hold on. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just heard you invalidate yourself. Like, hold on. What if we just pretended that what you're sensing that happened in that moment was exactly what had happened? Like, what just what happens if we stay there? And we yeah. actually ended up listening to some specific songs that were highlighting that phenomenon where it was like, no, like, mm-hmm. listen, other people are talking about this and singing about this. What happens if we talk about it, too? Um, yeah. But I'm glad that you just brought up that idea. And I think um, what you're talking about when I really try to look at the forest is this paradigm shift that's occurring between and within the supervisor and supervisee because of this idea that I think was foundational in psychotherapy where the identity of the psychotherapist wasn't relevant. We're going to sit behind the chaise lounge. We're going to go, mm-hmm, tell me more about that. And mm-hmm. we're going to be a blank slate that the client can bounce off of. And it is blowing that concept out of the water yeah. and saying, no, that's yeah. just not right. And and I think that's a paradigm shift, particularly for clinicians or supervisors that are coming at this from, we'll, we'll say, an older world perspective that hasn't mm-hmm. taken into consideration how we as clinician or supervisor are showing up in the room and our identities as part of the relationship as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's why, and, and I think that whole debate about the blank slate has existed for so long, right? I've, I've talked to colleagues about it over and over and over again. And yes, we want to be the blank slate in terms of not imposing our values and not imposing our perspectives on people. Um, but beyond that, we bring to the room who we are. It just, it is. It's going to happen. There's no way to really get around it. There's no way to really get around it. And and when you don't recognize that you invalidate someone um, because you've brought your value set, your perspectives, your worldview into the room, without being aware of what your worldview is and how it impacts other people in your when they're in your space. If you've not done that type of work, imagine, just think about this whole thing. When you invalidate someone, when you say, well, you know, you seem hyper-focused on race and racism, right? And maybe that's not what you need to do. People of color and, you know, everybody, God loves everybody, right? We're all humans, right? And when we do that, as nice as it sounds, right? You put, not only is it re-traumatizing that individual, you continue to perpetuate and and foster those seeds of doubt that create this racial battle fatigue thing that can happen in people. This, and and it's this, this, here's how it sounds. I feel this way and I feel it in my body, but wait, maybe I shouldn't feel that way because, but my stomach is in a knot. Well, maybe if I just pray about it, I'll be okay. Because, you know, maybe it's not as big a deal as I'm trying to make it. But, oh my gosh, I keep thinking about it. Okay, but this is too much. I'm just not going to think about this anymore. And then this is the, the back and forth in the mind of an individual. When they feel what they feel, when they've experienced what they've experienced, and they think something about it, and someone in power or someone of influence says, well... Why don't you think about it this way? Because, yeah. I yeah. I had an interview um, with an older white male clinician, uh, but we were, he's a motivational interviewing expert, and we were talking about the yes but, and that it is mm-hmm. so indicative of power and violence in therapy when we yes but, and that marginalized community members are, as you said earlier, I mean, you're bracing for the yes but. Mm-hmm. And that we yeah. don't want to foster that in supervision, nor do we want to foster that in therapy. Um, because how could anybody come to us and with who they are authentically if they're always bracing for the yes, but <laughs> where yeah. we just took our little power sword out of its sheath and went whoosh. Exactly. Well, you do not want, I was uh, sitting in a group of <clears throat> interns of color a few years ago. Um, because I realized that there were some things happening for them with their white supervisors that were not things that should have been happening. Um, and they asked for the space. So I gave them the space. And I am telling you, in that hour, I saw more tears from interns of color who had been invalidated in their sessions with their supervisors, had been felt insulted in their... And I was brought to tears. You never want to have a supervisee come out of your space 
in tears. And this is happening with supervisees of color who are working with white supervisors. We have to really understand that this is a thing. This is real. And when our supervisees of color end up in a clinical room with that type of thing having happened in the supposed safe space of their supervision, they bring that to the client. That shows up in them, in their, in their, their work with their clients. And so do no harm then goes out the window. It goes out the window. So we have to be extremely careful, mindful, aware, and doing the work. And accountability. Have accountability groups, supervisors talking with each other, not just of, of different backgrounds and saying, here's what happened. How am I, what am I not thinking about, right? And have those conversations and accountability and say, well, really, here's something that you could have thought about that maybe just didn't come up. What could you do with this if you incorporated it, right? So accountability. As you're speaking about it, I'm thinking about the fact that for an intern or an associate that's in supervision, they have a limited number of supervision opportunities over a certain number of years. And then they go out into the community and they may or may not you know, seek consultation, quote unquote, or seek supervision, quote unquote, and then they're in private practice and you know, off to the races. Uh, and that for you as a supervisor, you're acting in this space of a lot of potential because for every supervisee you're working with, it's however many dozens of clients are on the other side yeah. of that yeah. uh, experience um, of, yeah. of therapy. And so just as you were saying for the, for the white uh, supervisor who has invalidated the supervisee of color, how often then is that getting carried over for the white therapist who's invalidated the client of color and that we as white supervisors are co-signing that by not talking about this yes, um, yes. with with any of our supervisees of color, but particularly with our white supervisees, we are we are then um, complicit yes, in in it carrying forward to the next client and the next client, and then that doesn't even mention the outcomes research of what the consequence of that is that once we had that client that came to us mm -hmm. vulnerably and said, I need help. And then we blow it, um, that the probability of them ever getting the help goes down dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that is a scary reality. The other thing to think about too, because we've been talking about white therapists, therapists of color can be just as invalidating if they're not careful. Just because we're people of color doesn't mean that we understand and that we don't suffer with a space of internalized racism that pops up sometimes when we're working with supervisees of color and white supervisees. And so supervisors of color have to do the work as well to understand and find those spaces of internalized racism. Remember when I said I talked about this whole thing when I was teaching and right students of color who weren't as prepared but through no fault of their own, it comes from that systemic space, right, in the education system. If I didn't think through that and understand it, that's internalized racism in myself, that preference of, I prefer to read the work of white students because most of the time, you know, I can see that they're prepared and there are no grammatical errors or fewer grammatical errors, blah, blah, blah. And I don't like to grade as much the student, the, the, right? That is internalized racism in its worst form. It's worst form. So yes, I need to spend time as a, as a uh, faculty of color, just as a faculty. And yeah, if there are errors, I point it out and I help them learn it because nobody else did, but they have pushed through to grad school despite the disparities and the inequities, and they are continuing to push through. So I damn well better show up and help them because they've pushed through and I'm going to help them push through. You have shown up in this interview with so much wisdom and conscientiousness and also with authenticity. And I just want to thank you for that because you're bringing it here to me and here to Clearly Clinical. And I can only imagine that it's the same authenticity that you're bringing to your supervisees. And for me, I am uh, taking away just 
this challenge. Um, and I'm glad to take away the challenge from this conversation um, to, to look in the mirror and continue doing the work. And I think part of that is because of people like you that are willing to have these hard conversations and look deeply at this and then say, you know, to, to, to take somebody else and say, hey, you come look at this too. <laughs> Stop turning your face away. You come look at this. Um, and I sincerely appreciate the power of the hour, and I don't mean to rhyme, but the power of the hour that you spent with us in having this conversation, because I think you've planted seeds for all supervisors, regardless of their race or ethnicity, to sit with these concepts in appreciation of the similarities and differences of how we show up in, in a supervision relationship. Um, so thank you, Dr. Sutherland. This is something that will be staying with me and I'll be thinking about it. Um, you and I could keep talking. However, for our <laughs> listeners that want to yeah. learn more about you and about your model, um, please share how folks do that. Sure. And and thank you as well for giving space to this. It's such an important topic and there are limited spaces for us to really talk about it. So I definitely appreciate uh, Clearly Clinical. Um, in terms of how to reach me, you can reach, uh, find out more about uh, the workshops that I offer uh, and the models that I teach by going to um, LegacyProfessionalDevelopment.com. Um, you can also find me at my website, DrSonyaSutherland.com. Um, and I offer workshops just uh, not just around um, race and ethnicity and supervision, intergenerational trauma, and how to work with that. Um, but supervision as well, ethics, things like that, and self-care. We didn't talk a lot about it, but it is as important for supervisors as well. So my hope is that uh, those workshops uh, continue to be helpful moving forward. Thank you, Dr. Sutherland. I'm really appreciative of this time. Um, and I'm sure you'll have our listeners reaching out to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been fun talking to you. You as well. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.